mother, warrior princess, franchise owner. I hear glass ceilings shattering all over town. Thanks for listening to Game On Girl, the podcast where we talk about gender and game culture. I'm your host, Regina McMenemy. And I'm your co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. Today, we'll be talking to co-founder and president of Trinket Studios, Tom Eastman. We're going to talk about an episode of The Big Bang Theory again today and look at how pop culture and especially the very popular Big Bang Theory is talking about gender stereotypes. So stay tuned, and we're glad you're listening to Game On Girl. Today we have the honor of speaking with Tom Eastman, co-founder and president of Trinket Studios Incorporated, creators of Color Sheep and Orion's Forge, who are part of the Indie Showcase at PAX East. And Rhonda and I had the pleasure of meeting him as we made the rounds over there. So thanks, Tom, for uh, coming on the show and chatting with us. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted. Uh, so give us a little bit about your background history, um, your gaming histories, a little bit about your sort of experience. So I, I grew up playing games like a lot of kids these days. And and uh, it was when I went over to a friend's house and saw him playing Warcraft 1 that I said, this is what I want to do with my life. <laughs> oh, Though wow. at, the time, at the time, it was one of three options. The other were professional soccer player or astronaut. And, um, <laughs> that's a nice as you might remember, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a little too tall to be an astronaut. Or that's what I, I kind of figured at the time. And, or as I grew up, I, I kind of gave up, which is kind of sad. And professional soccer player, I, I didn't really happen either. But game developer did seem possible. And uh, so it went it went from there. And for some reason, I was one of those kids who knew exactly what it, I wanted to do growing up. And so I just started jumping at opportunities to learn programming in high school. And uh, I was mainly self-taught. I got through the very little curriculum there was at my high school and just started learning OpenGL and C++. And I uh, now know that I really was terrible at programming, but I spent <laughs> high school making games and uh, made some educational games at a little internship to make a little money. And uh, that, that was enough to convince uh, Dartmouth College to accept me into the computer science program. And uh, then when I graduated, I was I headed to Wideload Disney. And so it was a very, uh, very simple journey. Unlike a lot of people heading to college, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. <laughs> Yeah, that's a nice change. I, well, I, I teach college, and I am often teaching college composition, so I teach first-year students mm -hmm. who oftentimes come into class. They have an independent research project, and through that project, they'll decide to change majors because they're like, uh -huh. oh, I hate this major <laughs> that I abstractly picked because somebody told me it would be a good idea. Yeah. So it's it's kind of nice, I'm sure, when you go in and you're like, this is what I want to do. <laughs> yeah, it, it definitely simplified my college experience. <laughs> yeah. So co when you were taking classes in college, it, you you didn't get disillusioned about, wow, th is this really what game development's like? I think, uh, so I, I went, I majored in computer science, which uh, in my mind is just so totally separate from game development. Yeah. Like, I'm a programmer, and that means like I am a computer scientist or whatever, and so I understand data structures and all that, but Game development is really much more creative and seat of your pants kind of programming. <laughs> like like a lot of computer science projects, you wouldn't like make a prototype or something or be like, oh, this isn't fun. Programming usually doesn't isn't evaluated by how much fun the result <laughs> is. But yeah. Yeah. but so I spent college really my college classes, I viewed them as I'm gonna learn computer science so I'm a good programmer and I'm gonna do game development on the side 
or at internships to become a good game developer. And they were just totally separate. And I know like Ben Perez on our team, he actually went to a game uh, kind of game design and programming program and that worked out really well for him. But I, they were just totally separate for me. Man, these dudes were really together when they went to college. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't get myself together until about, I don't know, 20 years ago. <laughs> like, well, I guess the other perspective is maybe I missed the crisis freshman year that I should have had. It's going to happen in a couple of years. <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, you're just putting off the inevitable yeah. at some point. <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 well, I went in actually, I went into college thinking I was going to be a psychology major and changed mm-hmm. to English. So it still stayed within sort of the same basic yeah. liberal arts, humanities uh-huh. thing. But as soon as I figured out that the theology in psychology meant it was a science, I was like, what? No. That's enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> one class. And I'm like, no, that's not what I want. <laughs> well, one of the things I found interesting, and there may not be a whole lot behind this, but I was reading your bio on your website, that you worked on some educational type computer games when you were with Fabian Baber. And I was curious, because we talk about gamification here uh, a bit. Do you remember whether or not that there was very much of anything there taking that kind of approach that helped you with creating games strictly for entertainment? Um, Let's see. I think certainly back then uh, there wasn't a lot of, there wasn't the motivation of the gamification buzzword stuff around. So at the time... um, I my I interned with them. There are a couple lived down the street and had a small uh, kind of independent media company, and they they would do DVDs to for training people or for kids or and they do all sorts of cool sort of documentaries that taught you and showed you cool stuff from other countries sort of thing. And uh, I started on I was half time working on like just trying to make a game called Math and the Maya and halftime babysitting their kids. So <laughs> Ah, okay. So so it wasn't it was more like, yeah, you could be a babysitter and if you're useful, you can work on some stuff on the side. And uh I interned there for oh three three years at least. And by the end of it I there was a lot less babysitting. But uh definitely the first year it wasn't particularly focused. They just gave me the assignment um we're making this really cool documentary for Discovery called Math and the Maya. It's going to give a lot of Mayan history and then also talk about the Mayan base 20 uh, numeral system. Mm-hmm. And so they were like, you could probably make a game about that, right? And so I did, and it was you know, pretty awful. Uh, it, it, was, <laughs> it was very graphically disappointing, let's say. But uh, it, you'd, you'd kind of walk around a Mayan temple, and to get through the doors, you had to solve a Mayan math puzzle. And uh, so there was very little... Uh, gamification of like the the perspective that we took on making it was just kind of like hey Tom make make a thing that has mine addition and subtraction in it mm. um, but I, I I have no idea how successful that kind of concept was except that uh, the following year they were like hey it turned out the discovery liked that we were making a game for the documentary we're going to, then the series is continuing. So they did math in the Indus River Valley and math in the age of exploration and a whole, whole bunch of, a whole series and Discovery said, hey, make flash games for all these. And so they had actually hired a real programmer <laughs> to turn it into, turn math and the Mai into a real flash game. And then I, then subsequent internships, I worked on a couple more. And it, I think, it was really, it wasn't about, about really using games to 
help people learn. It was about uh, just discovery thing. It was a good idea to put it on their website. <laughs> yeah, to have okay. yeah, kind of a, a crossover between yeah. the documentary and and like an interactive component yeah. to it rather than really exactly. a learning component. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also worked at, like I did the worksheets for the math and the Maya game, so that was kind of cool. But it was very. Like, that had nothing to do with games. It was just straight up, can you add these dots and dashes? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the television does that a lot now because they'll have a, you know, a TV show yeah. and then they'll have an online game. So, I mean, the, even if it's marketing, it's it, it's really loose. It's gamification, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's a great way to get people to actually interact with things instead of just absorbing them and forgetting them. Yeah, cool. yeah, it can be a very powerful learning tool, especially with, you know, web resources and the ability to go online and sort of follow up. I remember when PBS first started doing that with Nova, you know, yeah. many, many years ago with videos to follow up and, and games you could play about, you know, a documentary they had about bees and you can like watch, you know, how the bees re- interacted and, you know, apply what you'd learned in the documentary. Yeah. And it can be a really good way to reinforce those skills. So it's got a lot of potential. I think people are just starting to kind of tap into it in terms of games, especially app driven games. So yeah, I, I definitely think gamification is going to continue to grow. It's been and especially weird now that we're, you know, minorly successful that we get contacted by people looking to figure out how to monetize our games better. And that whole sense of uh, the whole app market is just so bizarre to us. The way that games are kind of like the way Facebook games like Farmville were used to mm-hmm. as not really fun games, no. but ways to <laughs> ways to encourage virality or something. And yeah, ways to encourage clicking and interaction between yeah, people yeah, it's it's really yeah. it's really interesting sort of model to study and to avoid <laughs> or at least yeah. that's how i feel as a gamer looking at it i'm i look at these things now and i played farmville for a while uh-huh. and i look at it now and i look at other games like that and i'm like i don't want to play anything that forces me to post on my wall in order to continue playing yeah. <laughs> that's just there's something about that that's just kind of dirty <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely how we feel. But now that we're in the position of, if we were a little dirty, would it make more money? (laughs) It's it's, it's a lot harder. (laughs) Where's the dirty line? (laughs) How comfortable are we with with walking this line here? (laughs) I'll do a shameless plug. I'm doing... um, a Coursera course online with, um, uh, I can't remember the university now, but there it's on gamification. And it's talking about the appeal of games like Farmville versus Plants versus Zombies versus WoW and stuff like that. It's pretty interesting. Oh, I bet that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. We might have to talk more about that on another episode. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things you told us when we were talking at uh, PAX was how you guys had left Walt Disney to start your own company and um, did you feel like you had like won the lottery or was that how is how did it feel when you sort of had made these this big decision the decision to leave Disney yeah um, it, I think it was a long time coming <laughs> <laughs> like uh, me knowing exactly what I wanted what I wanted to study in college had transferred after graduation into this plan that I would work for six years at a really awesome studio and after six years it was my definite plan that I would maybe steal some people, but definitely start my own studio. Um, and it was just this this kind of like sort of thing you need to do in your life. You have to try to be creative on your own. And after three years at Disney, I had reached that point when I didn't think six years was the best idea anymore. Mm. And I'd met Eric and Ben 
and it seemed like it was the right time because I had actually started when Wide Load was just Wide Load, and then a month later, after I went full time, Disney bought Wide Load. Disney at the time was going through a lot of corporate restructuring, and that that meant there was a lot of bureaucracy and just friction between Wide Load in Chicago and Disney in outside of Los Angeles. Right. And um, it just it it really it, like I said a lot of friction, and uh, we ended up making a big game Avengers Initiative Hulk. Um, where we worked with Marvel, who Disney had bought as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that meant that there was, you know, red tape between Disney and Marvel. And Disney wasn't particularly focused on making mobile games yet. But uh, we, we shipped an awesome game, and I'm really proud of it. But at the end of that, it, it was definitely time that uh, for us to g- try out our own way. Like, we felt like our skills were being used fully at Disney, but there are a lot more skills. Like I don't want to be just a programmer. And I think like Eric didn't want to just be a concept artist. And I think Ben felt the same way that taking on more responsibility is, is a lot easier when you're alone or together in a small group than it is in a big company. Right. And so yeah. it seemed like a, it seemed like the right decision and absolutely the right time when we're young, we have some savings thanks to Disney and we can give it a shot. Yeah. That's very well, exciting. When, when you were working on a big brand, like with Marvel and the Hulk, um, did, did you find that there were just a, a, a huge number of branding restrictions or were they pretty loose creatively? Oh, it was, it was absolutely horrendous. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I think, I think they realized from that game that they need to loosen up a bit, but at the time it was really brutal. Like we were making a mobile game and like it, Eric would make a concept of the Hulk and Disney would give feedback two or three weeks later and Marvel would give feedback two or three weeks later mm-hmm. and and demand changes, and when really we needed to be finished, the whole 3D model and all the animations back on oh week my one. <laughs> yeah. And, and so that that was you know extraordinarily frustrating, and, and something that I think Disney and Marvel had to go through to learn that. But being inside the process at the time, it was just very painful. Yeah, that's um you know a sort of too many chefs in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, and and it was especially I think uh, the Marvel Avengers movie was coming out and. They put a huge amount of money behind that, and they couldn't have some game like, you know, making Hulk look like a goofball or something. Right. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's kind of a goofball in the movie, but... Yeah, yeah. In, in a very Hulk kind of way. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's kind of funny. Yeah, I think it's one of the first times I've really liked the Hulk. Yeah, in I the agree. Movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He kind of he was he had a personality and he was funny. Yes, exactly. He, it stood out as a as a different kind of character characterization yeah. from that character. So, besides just creatively and being able to expand on on your skills, did the three of you had have any other ideas or any other reasons that you wanted to bring into Trinket Studios when you decided to to branch out on your own? I think it was really about having the creative freedom and we had a whole bunch of meetings early on and we're still having those about what kind of identity we want trinket to have oh nice i think Mm -hmm. very good yeah um, the big the big driver of that i think is eric's art because eric comes from a character concept uh background or he comes from all sorts of backgrounds but he particularly likes doing amazing characters and so we wanted to make sure that we were making games that really showcase that and so our our tagline that we came up with that is not in any of our branding is kind of we wanted to make um, small games with big character or big cool. personality. And I think both of our games so far, especially Color Sheet, really showcase that like 
strong character design. So I think I think that that was our big big thing we decided on after leaving that we wanted to focus on and r- really really bring something new to characters and not just make silly. We want to have really strong gameplay to go with it, but the characters we want to be the focus. Yeah, I think that's what I noticed the most about Color Sheep and I'm glad you you mentioned it. We Regina and I both got to play Color Sheep and Orion's Forge. Um, why, why don't you just give us a quick your elevator speech for both of those games? Sure. Color Sheep is a game where you mix colors to fire lasers at wolves as Sir Wilson, and then Orion's Forge. That's Color Sheep is our, our arcade, fast-paced game. It's pretty stressful, and Orion's Forge is our super relaxed puzzle game. It's kind of like a magnet puzzle game where you move towers around to guide a flow of stars. Um, and then each time you you build up a new star and it launches into the sky to form another piece of a new constellation. And each constellation represents a little alien fable we made up, like Aesop's Fables, but with aliens. It's so cool. I just loved that game. Thank you. <laughs> I thought it was so creative and it, you know, I've played a lot of physics games. And it was just so much different than the gameplay itself was different with the way you needed to play it to the Mm -hmm. point where at first I was like, I'm not sure I get this. (laughs) And then it took me a little bit to kind of get the hang of it. And I'm like, oh, okay, I get it now. But I love the elements of story that are woven into it because it's so easy to get into physics games or quick app games that don't have very much depth to them. And I thought that that was a really strength of Orion's Forge. That was actually a, a huge... Uh, design issue that we I'm glad we ended up with the fables that we did but it was really tough we started off with just a magnet prototype sort of thing mm-hmm. where it was just play around with magnets and it's fun and then we built up some more mechanics and made a whole bunch of puzzles but like I said we really want to have characters in it and so we thought let's make a story based puzzle game and we made this epic science fiction story about this young kid who lives in this terrible town where that's kind of oppressed by these ancient ruins of towers. And the kid decides or finds a way to kind of move the towers. And the town reprimands him and is super angry at him for potentially like destroying the town. And it's like this very long epic tale where it's got it's like a full arc mm-hmm. in a puzzle game. And we prototyped it with kind of like quick art. And each after each puzzle, you'd get this sort of vision from the alien race um, that, that who's, who had left the towers behind. And every set of puzzles, you'd get a whole bunch of images that would explain like what the town and the kid were doing. And we tried it out and it was just terrible. You couldn't remember <laughs> anything. Like you'd play a puzzle and you would have no idea what was going on. <laughs> And, and so we realized, like, we really needed something that would remind the player every time of what they're doing. Right. And that, that's why we have the fables. You get a new illustration every time, but it puts all the previous lines of the fable there right. and then gives you a new one. Right. And, and that was, like, we had spent, I don't know, a week and a half on a script. Uh, this was a nine-week game, so that was a really long time on a, on a full science fiction epic and then uh, with all these characters, and then we just had to can it. And then we spent Aww. two days writing, like reading Aesop's fables and writing our own and making <laughs> up weird aliens. And that was, that was a tremendous amount of fun. Well, and the, the two games are so opposite. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I love the way that you describe them because, yeah, Color Sheep is is definitely arcade. I mean, it's bam, bam, bam. But you just you've really got to move fast. And yeah. then uh, Orion's, you you really you can sit and puzzle yeah. and move you can't and lose or you can't do it wrong. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, it, it's that you know, like you said, relaxing, sit down and kind of take and ponder maybe over you know yeah. a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or something like that and think about it. Games. Just and cool. I think making those two very different games was really valuable to us as well because we developed them at the same time. We start off with two weeks on Color Sheep and then we put in two weeks on Orion's Forge and back and forth um, and. That was, that was just a tremendous experience because there's only so much like arcade color matching you can do. Right. And then we could switch over to Ryan's Forge. And it also gave us stretched out the amount of time we could play test with people. And that was really valuable, too. That's really cool. I, I, I like the compliment. I mean, they complement each other as games, but in terms of how I imagine at least the creative process works to be able to work on one and then take a break from it and go back, you know, and, and work on a completely different strategy and a completely different game setup between the two. I think, you know, that I could see that working very well in terms of keeping your creative energy up on both projects. So you don't tire out on one from, you know, know, we got burnt out or hit dead ends. Yeah. And then, then it's really easy to just jump on something else. And then after like a couple of weeks, you're ready to tackle that, intractable problem again right and i imagine as a small studio or as you're building that that helps too because you only have a few people you're working with so you want to keep everybody (laughs) with their energy where you need it yeah absolutely (laughs) uh neat am i remembering correctly i think that you told us at pax that that was the very first time that the public you had actually demoed these games to them is that right yeah yeah that was our first convention altogether okay so how did it go what what kind of things did you learn from the the uh the players i think the biggest thing was just the diversity of people who are interested in a game like color sheep um i think color sheep was definitely the standout it's a lot easier to say hey a sheep with lasers than <laughs> physics puzzle game with alien fables um, <laughs> Yeah. But it, it was just fascinating to see, like, we'd have little kids come up, and uh, there was one little girl who came up every day, and her mom said that she just wanted to come back every day, and whenever she'd play a different game, she'd say, eh, it's not as good as Color Sheep. <laughs> oh, awesome. <laughs> but then it went from, like, that, like, a little girl to hardcore gamers who were just totally enthralled by a score attack game that you know, was really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then it, everyone in between as well. It was just fascinating to see like couples playing together or um, even casual gamers, people who are just fascinated by the art. Um, it, was, it was just ran the gamut. And that, that was, we had kind of suspected that because um, we had kind of gotten some press before. Like we were in Entertainment Weekly alongside a couple uh, not indie at all games. And that was just a total shock. We never thought we'd be an entertainment weekly of all places, but that sort of uh, casual, accessible, but a game that doesn't treat players as casual players. Like mm. Color Sheep is a really hard game. We have an update that improves some things and then adds an even harder mode, but uh, <laughs> it's a really hard game. And I think it's to its benefit, it's got a very unique control mechanic that means that you don't have to have played Mario your whole life to get good at it. And that was a really rewarding aspect of it. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of nuance to it that, that there aren't to a lot of arcade games. 
Um, and I think that's one of the things that made it at least stand out as we were looking at some of the other games uh, that were being demonstrated on on screens, touch mm. screens, and, you know. The, the, the depth of the nuance were like, oh, wow. And I wondered now, this is something that I had thought about when I when, it, when, we, when we had played it and when we had looked at it in terms of like kids playing it and, and the kind of audience that you that might be drawn to it. Did you think about like that it's already kind of a color gamification kind of thing where people or kids can learn about how colors are mixed? As we, we, thought, we thought a lot about that at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then uh, one of the things we ran into immediately was the different uh, color models, and there's light, which is the additive color model, mm-hmm. where you you add red and green, and you do get yellow. And then there's the subtractive model, which is paint and or pigments, and that is what I think kids learn in school. And we're doing the opposite of that. And so we kind of had this fear of like we're teaching kids the wrong thing. And some kids <laughs> like red plus green equals yellow, and like the teacher's like, no, sorry. <laughs> And then, like, some kid would be ostracized for playing Color Sheep. Um, so we've, we've kind of skirted that issue, mm-hmm. and we feel really uncomfortable about it oh. um, because it, it doesn't really teach things. And we've gotten some press, including the New York Times last week, which uh, oh. said it was learning paint or, like, mentioned paint and learning in the same sentence. And we're like, well. <laughs> <laughs> and you're cringing inside. Yeah, it, it's something. That, and so, like, we were, like, just today we are updating our uh, – app descriptions and we're like I don't know if we should put this quote in because it's not paint (laughs) Um, so so it's a it's kind of a weird issue for us like it it was a game idea first with the thought of this is cool because you can learn about colors but um the difference between subtractive and additive color was certainly something I didn't know going into this (laughs) yeah color theory I had no idea how complicated that was until I started doing some design and oh boy I wish I had had a color class in school yeah, for a moment we thought, let's support a whole bunch of different ones and everyone can learn. And then it would really have to be a totally different interface. With with the um, subtractive model, you end up with a lot of browns, the way our interface works. Mm-hmm, and yeah. that's just very disappointing. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we leave the games, why don't you tell our listeners where they can buy them? You can buy Color Sheep and Orion's Forge on iOS and Android, no, specifically on the Google Play Store, though also on Samsung if you're outside the U.S., for 99 cents. Okay, so they can uh, you can play them on the phone? Yep, phone and tablets. Oh, I'm so excited. I thought they were only on tablets. <laughs> oh, oh, it's that's actually a funny thing that like when people play it on the tablets, it's kind of like DJing, but I prefer it on the phone because then you can use your thumbs. <laughs> oh, I know what I'm doing immediately after this. Excellent. I was think I've been shopping tablets. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> we just we just finished up today a big update that should make it even look even better on tablets, but it'll look even better on phones too. Cool. Yeah, well, I've I found that I don't I don't like the same games on my phone that I like on my tablet. Uh, there are some games that are like when I was playing Draw Something, I had to do that on the tablet because yeah, I couldn't yeah. understand how people could do that on their phone. <laughs> Yeah, the small screen definitely changes things. Yeah, yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. So what do you, what would you say or what do you think in, in terms of how you're sort of conceptualizing your gamers as you're designing, how well do you think you know the people who are playing your games? Or was that part of what you sort of learned at PAX? I think we have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, think, I think that was a big part of what we learned at PAX. Um, I think especially the mobile market, except for the last uh, Wide Load Disney game, 
we we had never made mobile games and we had never really played mobile games either um like i i don't think i don't think i'd ever played a phone a game on my phone um hmm. before starting on these and part of that was just because i didn't feel like i had time or when i game i like to be like relaxing more um yeah. But and that that was something we went into with a lot of trepidation. But it seemed like the mobile market was big, and it was a way that we could make small games without you know too much hassle. Right. Like paying paying Apple a hundred bucks or Google like twenty five or fifty bucks to be able to publish a game seems like a really great way to build a pipeline and start working together and not just sit down and start working on two year game. We really wanted to figure out what Trinket really was about and. What better way to do that than make small games? Yeah, to just mm-hmm. jump in and start producing. That's, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and I, I think that you guys have got huge success ahead of you because you already know you do not know gamers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You're at least willing to admit that. That you don't know what, what the gaming market's really like. So you're willing to be surprised or try Absolutely. anything. Yeah, and I, that was definitely one of the strong points of Color Sheep and Ryan's Forge. Like, there are lots of physics puzzle games, but we just went into it like, let's make our own and see what happens. And it meant that we made a lot of decisions that other studios wouldn't make. And we missed a lot of things like a quit button on Android. Apparently people really love that. But it, I think it, it helped our games be a, a little different than everything else that's out there. So when you came up with the ideas for Color Sheep and Orion's Forge, did you have a demographic in mind or was it more, it started as a, mainly a creative idea like, ooh, you know what would be cool <laughs> kind of thing? It, it definitely started as a, the Color Sheep in particular was like, what if there was a wizard sheep? And that, <laughs> that just seemed like a really good small game idea. Yeah. And uh, Eric came up with this sort of like color mixing thing and and we just prototyped it and it started off with sliders. And, and I think the philosophy we all like is to make games that we would want to play. Mm-hmm. Though, like I said, we, had, we didn't play mobile games. So we didn't really know what that would mean. And uh, None of we, you played mobile games? No. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm just, I don't know why I'm stunned by that. Yes, yeah, so I think that really, I, th- I think it was helpful. And it was kind of weird too. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of like uh, trying to design a first person shooter without ever having played one. Yeah. Like, like trying to think and, about what's what's there, you know. Yeah, and I think it really helped us evaluate which things were good on to play with a touch screen. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's very normal for games to work on uh, like your phone and your iPad and your computer and like color sheep would not work at all on a computer. We mm-hmm. we when we're developing it, mm-hmm. um, we actually use the number pad like each column of the number pad is like red, green, or blue. So we can play it, but it's it's not anything like swiping on the phone. And oh, so wow. so may, maybe having no real background in mobile helped us really focus on making games that made sense for touch. Well, and, and you just let it be what it was instead of like, oh, or... or you know, um, it's, it's sort of like that, you know, the talk about when you lift the veil, once you, as soon as you've seen how something's done, uh, then you can't not see how it's done anymore, yeah. you know? And so if you're not going into it with a, oh, well, this is how you play this game, then maybe that's part of the reason why your games turned out to be, 
sort of different and have different depth and interaction than a lot of other mobile games had. Yeah, I think that was that was definitely a part of it. Yeah, that's cool. That's very cool. Well, I think that's the second thing that is going to be part of the reason for your success is that your games are character driven. Mm-hmm. I think I think with those two things, it, because that's immediately what appealed to me. I thought Color Sheep was brilliant mm-hmm. and it was the simplicity of the character. As soon as I saw that sheep, especially the intro video, mm-hmm. I'm like, dude, he's cool. What does he do? <laughs> and and then, I mean, it's so simple, but and I, I, I tend to not like very um, simplistic art in games. I'm very, mm-hmm. very attracted to the art first. Mm-hmm. But there was something about that that was just composed just so well on the screen that you had a lot going on, but it was completely readable instantly when mm. you saw it. It was yeah, very. I think there's, very there's. Well I can't underestimate how amazing Eric is. He's he's like just a simply phenomenal artist. And whenever the programmers get lazy, he he'll make a mock up and be like, "This is how it needs to be. This is how it should look," and we make that happen. Awesome. Cool. Awesome. Well, I have to say, the thing that drew me to your table was the fact that you had the yarn sheep. I, I feel <laughs> oh, yeah. like a girl saying that, but I was like, look, there's little cute yarn sheep. I have to go look at this. <laughs> yeah, we, we just. She, she, she said, come here, come here. You have to see these sheep. <laughs> uh, we, we just absolutely hit the jackpot with that. One of our, our fellow programmers back at Wideload, his wife uh, crochets things all the time and has an Etsy store. And we had. They have a board game night all the time, and we had brought Color Sheep over, and she she was able to play it on her tablet, and she got very good at it, and just really liked Sir Wilson the sheep, and mm-hmm. uh, she actually started crocheting like a little Sir Wilson pillow before we had even known about it, and she was going to give it to us as a gift just for letting her play test it, and Aww. and then when Pax was coming up, we were like, hey, you want to like design some some crazier ones, some more 3d guys and and she she was all for it so we just got really lucky there that was awesome it was you know you know everybody's got to have a gimmick it's it's you know especially at PAX because there's so much shiny stuff to look at and it was seriously you know so simple and engaging and I'm like oh we have to go see what this is about Would she would she let you tell her Etsy store on the show? Yeah, yeah, that was actually a part of the deal. We had her business cards. Oh, nice. And uh, every now and then, people are like, "Hey, do you have any merchandise?" And we we send them over to her. Okay, and so, so we, we can put that link up on our page. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. All right, so so let's jump into some of our our standard questions here. Um, and these are the the questions, some of the questions that I used when I worked on my dissertation. So we're going to yeah. start with the big one, the the big big one. So how would you define a gamer? This I was thinking a lot about this last night, and I don't think I came up with anything good. <laughs> um, I, I was I was trying to get you know more academic with it and get into like. Gamers are people who enjoy challenging choices or something like that. But <laughs> that works. or like somewhat fantastical challenging choices or escapist challenging choices. I don't know. Something like that. Cool. I like that. And I don't think we've heard that before. No. It's, we never hear the we same never thing hear twice. The same thing on this question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a year we've been over a year we've been recording and we never we've never had anybody say the same thing. So challenging choices. So it's about sort of the decision making process. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think oh well, I guess not all games have that sort of decision. Like a uh, arcade game or even color shape doesn't really have that many interesting strategic decisions. It's like you just gotta perform it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I think in general there's probably the strategic element element or like 
kind of tactical planning sort of elements of games, I think are definitely critical or mm-hmm. important, but I guess games are kind of like art or something and hard to define. Yeah. Yeah. And I, oh, I think nice. yeah, that's beautiful because I think this the same is, is very much true for gamers because there's so many different ways that people play and engage yeah. and enjoy themselves gaming that I think trying to pin anybody to one thing is, is kind of, you know, limiting on something that should be yeah. bigger. So do um, you guys ever debate about the, because I mean, you mentioned in, uh, Orion's Forge that you can't lose. Is the idea of permadeath in game important? Do you think it's an issue with uh, thinking about a game or with a, a player enjoying a game? I, I think it's one of the things, like permadeath is one of those things that as game developers, you're super interested in making it so that players are can be as invested in the game as possible. That always seems like one of those ways, but I think everyone's really afraid of doing it because if you're not that sort of player, then it's a huge turnoff. Like if you're not someone who becomes invested in their character for specifically the character, if if you're not someone who becomes invested in the game because of your character, like if you just like exploring or something, Mm -hmm. then permadeath seems like it's the worst possible thing because then you can't keep exploring. Right. Or something where, like, you restart your exploration or something. Yeah, losing your progress, that kind of idea. I think it's one of those things. It it seems like one of those things that an indie studio should do really well someday. Or I guess there are games that do have sort of permadeath, but you just restart and it's not, you're not as invested. Like, a really large game where you get really invested and then your character permadies, just, it seems kind of mean. Yeah, I can see that. I've, I, well, we've been, you know, kind of batting this idea around. And I was playing um, uh, Torchlight Two with one of our former oh, guests, um, Nanania, who's a YouTuber, and um, it was really interesting because she had been playing on hardcore mode, yeah. where where you, where there is permadeath, where your your character is going to die on a different character, and we had started new characters all at the same time, so we could all be the same level. And I realized after having played maybe two or three times with her that she had become a much more cautious gamer than I yeah. have ever been, because <laughs> I would just run in and I die and I go back to the beginning and I lose my gold or whatnot. But she almost never died because she was used to that mechanic, you know, sort of being an overarching idea of how she was playing the game. And so I wonder if it's for in in terms of design if it's something that you're choosing at the beginning or something that you know from the beginning that it can kind of incorporate into your play in a specific way or might impact you because part of what I was thinking after I had been playing with her was maybe that's what I needed to do because I, I'm not often a very careful player um, I'll just go in and I'll run around and I'll die and I'll you know whatever I don't think about the consequences as much so maybe I needed to kind of take the risk with that to yeah, kind of I think, see I think that it was Results, permadeath results in players needing to be mastery players. Mm-hmm. Like you, you can't make any mistakes. You have to optimize everything. And I think for some people that's really fun, but I would hate it. <laughs> and I think the the big struggle for developers too is that um, you have to make the game more fair. Mm-hmm. Like if you have areas that just happen to be a little harder or a little easier, it's okay if your players can die and they come back and something is slightly better like or or they can overcome it through death right right <laughs> but but when you can't then then it makes your game design much more uh, i don't know brittle or painful 
because you really have it has to be perfect yeah like, it has to be as very someone balanced. gets to level 30 the enemies have to be exactly prepared for them mm-hmm. and if your random number generator kills them then that's just the worst yeah so what do you like to play um i'm all over the map i think my my mainstay the game i grew up playing like every weekend with seven other friends was halo and i i haven't played halo 4 all that much because i've been too busy but um i pretty much play all the high profile xbox games and then all the blizzard games except for world of world of warcraft because i don't have that kind of time <laughs> and uh <laughs> nobody does anymore <laughs> yeah. um and then every now and then i'll pick up a racing game but uh, and then indie games every now and then and now mobile games on occasion um but i think I, I played like right now i'm playing bioshock infinite almost done um but i think rpgs uh, going back to like Baldur's gate and then including action rpgs like diablo and then mass effect and i don't know bioshock i guess you could maybe call an rpg but yeah yeah a, a wide range all over yeah you hit uh two of ronda's favorites right in a row there Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Diablo and uh, Mass Effect. Oh, excellent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I think Mass Effect is definitely one of my favorite series. Yeah, that's the one that Rhonda got really mad at her at our PlayStation for. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, my, play- my PlayStation, uh, the hard drive died. Oh. And I lost my character. Oh, wow. Yeah, we had and, a whole episode uh, about it. <laughs> <laughs> it is the first real RPG I had done. Uh, fully fleshed out and it, it was i had played her and in, imported her into mass effect yeah. 3 and uh wow. i could I, I just was surprised by my reaction to it so mm-hmm. yeah that's permadeath right there <laughs> yeah exactly it was but not by choice and not and not an option which is part of where we started thinking about the it has to be an option and not just something that happens to you <laughs> yeah so I'm curious, you said you've played a couple of mobile games now. You, uh, which ones have you tried out or what have you sort of experienced now that you've become a mobile designer? Um, one, one of the really fun ones I've been playing is uh, another another guy left. He was a game designer at Wide Load Disney and left near the same time as us. And uh, they put out Oregon Trail. It's like Oregon Trail, but with zombies. So it's O-R-G-A-N. <laughs> and uh, it's like a complete reskin. And then they added a ton of new stuff. And so it, it's got all that, like, buy batteries for your car mm-hmm. instead of your, your wagon. And, um, and then you, you can name all your friends. And some they might get bitten or get dysentery. And um, you get the whole – it's a really fun game to just <laughs> – oh, like a, a, a full game might take, I don't know, 45 minutes or so. But you can just pick it up on the bus and, mm-hmm. you know, make it from Chicago to St. Louis or something and avoid some zombies. Oh, that's cool. Is it a social game or can you play it by yourself? It's it's really only by yourself though. Since okay. you can name the other people in your station wagon as your friends, um, they have a pretty cool Twitter integration. So when when your silly friend gets bitten by a zombie or like loses twenty bucks in the seat cushions or something, you can tweet about it. And that that seems <laughs> oh, like a, so a cool. really fun thing. You can yell that's at fantastic. them on Twitter. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've actually found out that I've been named in a couple of people's XCOM games, uh. <laughs> and and then I've died, and so I was like, oh, like in one of them I had to be, I won't give away the ending, but in the ending I had to be one of the people at the end that died, and I was like, oh man, that sucks. <laughs> but that didn't get put on Twitter, so... <laughs> 
kind of cool. So have you guys debated at all the the idea? Because I, th- I think it's an idea that's promoted in marketing personally. But the idea that there's a difference between or there is a term for casual versus hardcore gamers. Um, uh, we, we've talked about it in, in the dining room where we work. Um, but I, I think we, we, we even struggled to come up with what hardcore gamer meant. And I think there, there's certainly an influx of gamers who are, some went to the like Facebook social gaming sort of thing, and some are going to mobile, and the marketplace is kind of saturated by people who may not be as savvy about what games to purchase. Like, there are games where you, you're not bombarded by ads every two minutes, and mm. yet the ones with ads still do better, you know? Uh, so that that just tells me that there's sort of like a, a Farmville issue that's going to work itself out as people realize that playing Farmville and then a clone of Farmville and then one more clone of Farmville isn't isn't the most fun that can be had on their phone. But I think I think that's the bigger difference. Like people who are unaccustomed to buying games or researching games or choosing which games they're going to spend time on or spend money on. Um, and then players who are accustomed to that. And I think hardcore gamers are more accustomed to that. But right. uh I think the way that especially mobile games are played, it's that most people just, you know, play it on the toilet or on the bus and <laughs> yeah. and and it doesn't really have to do with what kind of gamer you are. Right. It's it's more so, about access at that point than yeah. than um, how you're playing or how you're engaging it. I actually uh, had someone in the dissertation study who had said the difference between hardcore and casual was more about how much money you're willing to spend a year yeah. on gaming. <laughs> and, I, and I had never really thought about it that way. Um, yeah. But that she thought that that was really the definition that the industry was pushing hardcore as a definition for you need to have all of these games to be hardcore to get people to continue to spend money on games. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's just depressing, but <laughs> it might be a little accurate. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, did you take a look at our, our gamer types on the site? You said yeah, mastery, absolutely. so I figured you did. So do you have uh, an idea of what you identify with? So this is kind of interesting. I, when I read them, I was like, I'm definitely a self-gamer because I, I would think back to uh, like Dragon Age or Mass Effect and I... I would play the characters and make them look like how the the person I thought. Mm. And then I thought, okay, well, that's kind of interesting because in Diablo 1 and 2, I played as the ranged female character. So that's kind of weird. <laughs> but um, And then I was like, I could I could justify that by saying that my myself is interested in archery or that sort of thing, or ranged combat, I guess. Right. And, and that that's why... The closest representation that they had available for myself was the Amazon or the Ranger. Right. Um, but then I took the quiz and I got only, oh, what did I get? I got 40% mastery and 30% of each of the others. Oh. And so then I was like, well, that's disappointing. I don't know what I owe. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I could see, like, as a game developer, I. I'm definitely a mastery focused player. Like if I see how the design works, I'm going to try to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I definitely min max things as a programmer, but, and I also will definitely role play games uh, and like try to fit in with the, the scenario. And but I guess it's probably that I don't play world of Warcraft that I don't have a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> 
it just sounds uh, like you're a good all-around gamer. Yeah, I, I guess that, that would be fair to say. <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I've been, What I, I've had a couple of people ask me who came back like 30, 30, 35 or, you know, very mm-hmm. close on the lines. And I'm just like, well, you're just well-rounded. That's part of, yeah. that's part of it. And you know, what was funny is I didn't think about people being all three when I did, when I wrote my dissertation. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> I, saw that. I was like, uh-oh, what am I? <laughs> I should change identity it. crisis. <laughs> Gamer type identity crisis. Yeah. <laughs> like I, I, it was really interesting thinking about that and like thinking about the decisions I'd made in RPGs. Like if I try to play. Um, like a Firefly Malcolm Reynolds style character who is like like has a soft inside but acts really tough on the outside. Right. Um, I just I just can't do that. I, I get really frustrated because I'm just like oh I, I can't execute this person even though they probably are evil. <laughs> <laughs> but then like in some games it's easier to justify and be in that setting. I can I can be who I think I would be in that setting. You know. Right. But, yeah. I I, I had tough deciding <laughs> that's funny cool. yeah i i don't i don't think that that's that's unusual at all we actually have mm-hmm. one of our writers for the site is the same way he's like i'm a little bit of all of them and you know it's it's it is it is okay good it's perfectly yeah, normal it's perfectly normal yep. <laughs> no, no need for a crisis it's just more you know preference based or where, yeah. where and it might be because uh, about other personality um assessments um, it might have been influenced by where you were when you took it or what you had just been doing. So yeah, you just been yeah. programming and then you took it, your mastery might have been more mm-hmm. on at that time. So yeah. that might have been why it came out a little bit more. Well, this has been great, Tom. I really actually we always hate ending the talks because we just love talking about games and <laughs> stuff like that. I understand. But <laughs> we we um we definitely can find your games and at least link through trinketstudios.com if if at all fails we can do that right yeah <laughs> definitely and then your uh twitter is at trinket studios and then for you um at trinket tom yep and our cool. facebook is trinket studios as well <laughs> right on oh okay. yeah that's that's awesome. nice and easy yes Consistency is helpful. <laughs> yeah, have you guys got any shows or anything coming up? Um, we're actually going to be at C2E2. I have no idea what that stands, but it's a Chicago game and comic conference well, sort of thing. Cool, um, cool. That, that's, uh, I don't know, not this weekend, but the next one. We'll be there with a whole bunch of other Chicago indies having a good time. And awesome. hope we'll have two of our little makeshift arcade cabinets there. And then we just hate the thought of thinking about PAX, but PAX Prime might be a good idea. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it probably would be. Uh, I've been to pa- I've been to Prime as well, and it's it's a great place. Yeah, it seems like it would be very valuable. Yes. It's just the thought of being exhaust that exhausted and have no voice again. Yeah, and it's <laughs> it's four days this year. Yeah, and, oh, really? And the tickets sold killer. out. The tickets sold out. The passes, the four-day passes, sold out in 17 minutes today. Yeah, 17 okay. minutes. So that that, that worries us. <laughs> <laughs> like maybe maybe we've already missed a chance to be in the indie mega booth or something again. I have no. Yeah, I don't know, but but I just couldn't. No, I, I think we're okay. But yeah, yeah, sure. It's, you probably. It's are. so soon. It is so soon. It's just right around the corner. I couldn't. I couldn't believe. When it. is it? That um, it's the same weekend as Dragon Con, the last weekend of. Oh yeah, that's August. right. So, yeah, but it's a great show, and Seattle's a good time. So, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming and talking with yeah, us today, thanks, Tom. Huh? We really oh, thank you guys it. so much. This is really fun. Oh, great. Thanks. Yeah.
culture today, we're going to talk about season six, episode 18 of the Big Bang Theory entitled The Contractual Obligation Implementation. This episode has got two main storylines. Um, first of all, Raj is hanging out with the girls this time. And what he's hoping to get is some suggestions about what to do on his first date with Lucy, who is someone with extreme social anxieties. Uh, the other group, Leonard and the guys, are talking about a requirement they have with the university to serve on a committee to promote science among young women. So there's a lot going on in this episode uh, regarding gender, Regina. Absolutely. There's a, there's a lot. It was, it was kind of fun to, to watch. And from the beginning, I knew we were sort of going to uh, delve into gender issues when he started talking about the committees they were going to be on and deciding to be on the Let's Get More Women in Science Committee was really interesting uh, line for them to take. And it, it reminded me of, um, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but when I was working at IBM in New York now many, many years ago, I was actually um, helped do a technological camp for uh, uh, junior high aged girls to try to get them more interested in t computers and science. And uh, so it was really interesting for me to see, oh, here's something that I actually know a little bit about that I've participated in, and how are they going to talk about it on the Big Bang Theory? <laughs> yeah. Cool. So then what do they end up doing? What, what do our, our fearless Big Bang Theory heroes decide to do in terms of getting more young girls into science? Well, they... Mostly, they're, none of them are interested in doing this. No, um, <laughs> they are like the lowest priority, especially Sheldon, who's just like, why Why do I have to waste my time on this? Well, uh, yeah, and Sheldon, who just doesn't help other people at all just anyway. Just, That's yeah. just kind of, you know, everybody else is hopeless. But um, what, the, what they finally come up with is that they should uh, go talk to some young girls right. directly and talk to them about how, how great science is. And... The, their original ideas, I think, concentrated on college-age students mm -hmm. and uh, probably college-entering uh, right. entry students. And Sheldon's the one that says, you know, we should start earlier than that. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, that's ridiculous. And so that's Howard arranges for them to go to his elementary school and right. talk to some women about science. Right. And, and that was actually a really insightful thing because what the research shows is that if we want to get more women into sciences and into computer science and, and those, you know, degrees in those fields, you need to start at, at least at junior high, if not before that, that by the time girls hit high school, and definitely by the time they've hit college, the window to get them interested in sciences is, is long, long closed. So yeah. it was really, I was really glad that they sort of sent that message, knowingly or not, um, to go back into the to younger ages and not think that, you know, you can sort of change the ideas of how you want to see yourself or what kind of major you might have at, by the time you get to college. There's too much that's sort of established. And in some cases, you know, as you know, because you were a big science person in high school, in some cases it's too late by the time you get to college to even start thinking about those things. You need to take some yeah. of those classes in, in high school. So Yeah. And I, I really kind of felt from the from the very beginning of this episode that they were very purposefully dealing with women in science. Mm, absolutely. I, I, I felt like that they were, it is a very, I don't want to call it a shallow show, but it is a 30-minute comedy. Mm -hmm. And they don't deal with heavy drama, 
But the the points, I think the very few points that they made in the episode about gender stereotypes and women in science, I think were very purposeful. I think they were very clear. Yeah, and I, I think it's great when you can take a, a short comedic show and have it have a really powerful theme that can carry out like this. Um, you know, they have 30 minutes, they have a huge audience and, and having it be that driven, let's get this point across, I think is really, is really useful and and really kind of nice that they, that, you know, that they acknowledged because it is kind of remarkable if we, we think about the representations we have in the Big Bang Theory, uh, we have several male scientists, um, of varying degrees, varying uh, speci- specialities. But we also have two female um, scientists as well, who both have, you know, PhDs in their respective um, fields. And and it's really fantastic that we have those, I don't know, jobs, those careers represented in something that is this popular. Because it does show people, oh, here are some options you could have, you know, if people watch Amy Farrah Fowler cutting up brain samples looking for, you know, tumors, Maybe that'll spark somebody's interest <laughs> yeah. into going into that kind of science or doing that kind of work or, you know, the work that Bernadette d- does with microbiology, which we don't actually get to see generally. We, uh, I don't think we've s- actually seen her in her lab. We've seen maybe once, maybe once we have. I can't remember um, but I, but we've seen Amy several times in her lab, and yeah. um, and I think that 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 sends a really powerful message. And the fact that they drew attention to it in this episode, I think, was really great. Yeah, and I uh, I want to make up for my, my using the term shallow. I think that the writers of the show are very good because at the same time that they made to me some very clear messages about women in science, they at the same time I feel like in a, a not obvious way, uh, shed light on the miscon- misconceptions or the myths about uh, misunderstanding women in the science field mm-hmm. uh, with the way the guys had trouble thinking about it, the way they couldn't even consider it. Um, they didn't even know how to talk to women or talk about women. They right. didn't even know how to talk about their own field. Right, exactly. And and it was really interesting to watch them sort of fumbling as these three, four male scientists are up in front of, you know, this group of young women trying to do this. And it's Sheldon who finally says, oh, I'm sorry that we're wasting your time. How about you actually talk to some female scientists about what it's like to be a female scientist and maybe that'll be more useful for you. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm glad, I'm glad that, that, that was the outcome of it, but I was a little irritated that that wasn't their first thought. <laughs> like, Well, see, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. That's what I think the message was. Right, right. Oh, maybe we should think about this. Uh, guys. Yeah. Um, hello. Just <laughs> ask a woman. It's that easy. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. I can take that. And that makes me feel a little bit better about it because... <laughs> Because they did look really stupid up until that point. They really did look very stupid up until that point. And and they were really struggling and really trying to kind of contextualize their experience and completely incapable of doing it. And not using their resources to their best advantage. Mm-mm. Because no. they really, really could have, you know, done a lot better. <laughs> yeah. And I think that that to me is what came came clear is they tried everything. Right. And they started off at the very beginning saying, you know, we're so smart 
and we're so good, we're too busy for this. Right, right. We, we have too many other important things we should be doing other than this. And, and then in the end, they couldn't perform the simple task of talking to elementary school age children. Right. And solving this problem. And it, it, it's just the idea, exactly the way you said it, is, oh, well, <laughs> why don't we talk to our girlfriends? Right. <laughs> why don't we go back and acknowledge where this might, this might be helpful? Yeah. <laughs> but now when you when you originally said something to me about this episode, you, you had some problems with it. I, I, Have yeah. you resolved those? No, or? no, not necessarily. <laughs> okay, that's what that now we're going to have some fun. Now. What, what were the issues? Well, I, 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 I took us took at least a small issue with um, with the storyline of um, Penny and Bernadette and Amy. Um, having hung out with Raj and given him like suggestions about his date and he came up with his own idea about how he was going to do it, which was a delightful little story about the texting date at the library. That was awesome. That was really just, you know, sweetly fantastic. Yeah, and you it's gotta what, watch it. yeah, you got to watch that and you got to see that. Um, but the, the girls, um, decide to play hooky. They're all going to, you know, call in sick to work and go to Disneyland and, the big draw for Bernadette, apparently, is that there is a um, dress-up-as-a-princess uh, station. And I, I don't know if this happens in real life or if this is a real thing or not. But uh, they can go to Disneyland and they can dress up as, you know, a Disney princess. And um, it, even in the car before they've even arrived, um, Bernadette claims uh, Cinderella. And is like, no, I, it was my idea. I get to be Cinderella. And so at the end of the episode, when the guys and when Sheldon places a phone call to have the female scientists actually talk on the phone to the to the young girls, um, the irony, of course, is the fact that they are Amy and Bernadette are talking about how, you know, powerful and empowered you can be by getting a science degree while they're dressed up as Disney princesses. And what does that say to you? Well, I can accept the draw to wanting to dress up as a pretty, pretty princess. I, I can fully admit that. I love a good tiara. And I can appreciate the irony of them having these conversations and, you know, not um, it, you know, encouraging the young girls as they're dressed up as princesses, but that the whole idea that that was like the one thing they had to do when they went to Disneyland kind of miffed me a little bit, I guess, is how I would say that. Yeah, but I mean, if you're if you're playing hooky, and you're going to do the thing that, you know, as a grown up, you're going to go play and nobody's going to know about it, and you get a chance to do something, you know, yeah. I mean that. I mean, it was just kind of a fantasy thing, and yeah. I what I kind of what I liked about the ending where they're dressed as the princesses talking on the phone is like, you know, you don't have to give up one for the other. Right, right. And and I can see that too. And, and I, I, I think in kind of reflecting after we were talking about it a little bit and uh, prepping for this episode or after I had sort of said to you what I had been thinking, I could kind of see a different theme in terms of the ideas around women who go into the sciences, I think, or the stereotypes mm. about yeah. that are that they are they do that because they're not attractive because they can't 
succeed in the sort of stereotypical ways we expect women to succeed in being attractive and landing a successful husband to take care of them, et cetera, et cetera, whatever else they might want or need um, to take care of them, that kind of mm, idea. Um, so, of course, they must not have any desire for it, which which I think is total hokum. You know, I don't think that's yeah. true at all. And that idea of, you know, uh, third wave feminism of, you know, you can do both. You can have the science degree and the tiara. Yeah. It's fantastic. And that's how it should be. I guess it just it just kind of got my hackles up a little bit that, you know, <laughs> that play between the two of them and oh, we have to be princesses kind of deal thing, I guess, just kind of rubbed me the wrong way at the time. So so if you were going to go to Disney, what would you want to do more than anything? I would be on every ride. I've, I've only been to Disneyland once in my life, and I went on all the classic rides, the Pirates of the Caribbean, the um, um, Small World, all those things. And I love roller coasters, so I would be all ah, just okay. riding around and doing the roller coasters. And I, you know, part of my problem with Disney just in general <laughs> is I have read the original fairy tales that they made the Disney princesses from mm -hmm. and I know those original stories and they were very different stories and very different images than the Disney princesses so I always kind of like have this competing vision in my head of mm, their princesses yeah. and the ones that I know from the stories so yeah I don't <laughs> I don't have any desire to be dressed up like a lot of those characters because if you knew more about some of their backstories I don't really think that you'd want to be either. <laughs> well, and it's also interesting I want to bring this up too. We um we talk about a lot of different pop culture things here. We talk about the Big Bang Theory a lot and the Guild and it never occurred to me, of course, you know, it's just Regina and I sitting here talking, but at PAX, uh, someone came up to me and mentioned that they hate the Big Bang Theory and the Guild, and they don't like the way that geeks are represented there. They feel like that they're they're mocked and objectified. Right. Um, I, d I do admittedly love both shows, and I don't feel that that's what's done. I think I that, that it's... I think it's a very, um, very stylized. I think that they hold their own. I think that they, um, they grow and evolve. And I know geeks just like that. Mm -hmm. um, very much like that. <laughs> <laughs> and, but we, we definitely, I mean, Mostly we, we talk about it here based on the, the kind of issues that they bring up. And right. we've had problems with them before. Right. And if, if, if so, that's what we like to talk about. Right, exactly. And, and I've, I, I've read some of, some of the critiques of the Big Bang Theory. And one that I read that, I, you know, I wish I could track where I had read it to. But the basic idea was the person writing the post said they didn't like the Big Bang Theory because you're not laughing with the characters you're laughing at them and they didn't like the idea of laughing at characters that were representing geek culture and i thought about that and i can understand that you know i i, I the whole you know laughing with someone and laughing at them but you bring up a great point rhonda when you say it's a stylized show and I would take that a step further and say not only is a stylized show and a scripted you know show but it's also a sitcom and the mm -hmm. thing about sitcoms is you're always laughing at the characters in sitcoms. Yes. 
that's why it's a sitcom. It's a situational comedy. We're not laughing with Kelso. We're laughing at Kelso. Yeah. You're not laughing with the Three Stooges. You're laughing at the Three Stooges. It's it's the the nature of that type of comedy. What's nice about the Big Bang Theory, and and I will agree that there are complications, and we've talked about them, and we've talked about other representations and the difficulty in representing, you know, geek culture in sort of a mainstream, digestible way. Yes, that might be problematic for people, but at least we're seeing characters who do reflect these personalities that we know are out there. Yeah. You know? Yeah, we're, we're, they're not the um, the secondary characters or the comic relief exactly. uh, for the cheerleaders and the quarterbacks. Yes, yes, exactly. When I when The very first time that I watched The Big Bang Theory, um, I was watching with, a, you know, someone who was not of the demographic of The Big Bang Theory at all. And she called the characters her boys. Oh, I have to watch the show with my boys. <laughs> And that kind of ownership, you know, not a person of geek culture, not somebody who's kind of engaged in this, but had that kind of feeling and ownership about them. And and I don't think those are bad things for geek culture in terms of wanting and sort of having acceptance, you know. And yeah, you know, I don't and I also don't think it's so bad that we laugh at them because in in that way, we end up laughing at ourselves, too. Yeah. And and you need to be able to do that. <laughs> That's why well, we need situation comedies, because we need those laughs sometimes. That's exactly right. <laughs> well, we uh, love talking about pop culture issues, and we love hearing from you and what your comments are. You can find all of our social media links on our website at GameOnGirl.com. You've been listening to Game On Girl. I'm the co-host, Rhonda Oglesby. You can follow me on Twitter at RoRoom. That's R-H-O-R-H-O-O-M. You can email me, Rhonda, at GameOnGirl.com. The quote at the beginning of the show was from this episode of The Big Bang Theory, Season 6, Episode 18. And I'm your host, Regina McMenemy, or Doc Liz, as I'm known on Twitter and Steam. Thanks to Tom Eastman of Trinket Studios Incorporated for coming on the show today. We're really delighted to get a chance to talk to someone who's actively designing uh, games and mobile games in particular, because we know a lot of our listeners play mobile games. So if you haven't, go right now and check out color sheep and orion's forge uh, they're fantastic games and we think yeah, really i'm downloading them right now because <laughs> Rhonda's awesome like that <laughs> game on girl is available on itunes and stitcher streaming if you use a windows phone we're also available via podcast lounge you can stream the most recent episode there or buy the app for a dollar 99 and download them all these links along with references made in the show can be found on our website gameongirl.com this podcast is edited by ryan Bruce at Desert Tree Media, and the theme song Good Day by Triple Fox is used under a Creative Commons attribution license. Thanks for listening, and until next time, game on!